We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. How did Jeff Bezos turn Amazon into one of the largest corporations in the world? In my mind, I'm still delivering the packages to the post office myself. I still have all the memories of hoping that one day we could afford a forklift. Amazon's value as a company skyrocketed during the pandemic, and so did the already record-breaking personal fortune of the company's founder and CEO. But at what cost to workers, the economy, and the environment? We'll speak with Brad Stone, author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. Alexa, what do you know about Jeff Bezos? Jeffrey Preston Bezos is an American internet entrepreneur, businessman, media proprietor, and investor. Bezos is the founder and CEO of the multinational technology company Amazon. With a net worth of more than $200 billion as of April 2021, he is the richest person in the world according to both Forbes and Bloomberg's Billionaires Index. And he is even richer because of the pandemic. Amazon has permeated so many aspects of our lives, from controlling our smart homes to automatically reordering our groceries. My guest, Brad Stone, has covered the company for more than 10 years. He is the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg. His new book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad Stone, welcome back to Forum. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me. It's always great to have you here. We're going to be talking about your new book, Amazon Unbound, this hour. But I want to start with a story that actually made news on Friday about that highly publicized vote in Alabama last month when we all remember Amazon workers voted on whether to form a union. There's new reporting out from your colleagues, actually, at Bloomberg, suggesting that Amazon may have actually tried to influence that vote. What is the exact allegation there? Right. Um, and it was it's quite a circus and really unusual. So let me try to explain. So the the National Labor Relations Board is is hearing the retail, wholesale and department store unions claim that Amazon acted inappropriately. And this thing is going on every day and it'll last for weeks. And on Friday, an employee named Kevin Jackson, uh, I think he's a, a safety coordinator working the night shift. He's testifying via Zoom from his bed uh, because of a, an undisclosed health condition. Mm. And he alleges that he was leaving the facility uh, late one night or early one morning, I suppose, and his headlights were on and he saw Amazon employees emptying the mailbox, which the company had installed outside the fulfillment center to collect ballots. Wow. And of course, sort of alleging some impropriety. Uh, the NLRB uh, hearing officer seemed very interested in that. Obviously, this kind of accusation of misconduct, 
I mean, this puts a, a sort of fine point on it. The question, really the question for all of these union battles is whether the companies uh, that are, you know, fighting union attempts now have sort of too much power yeah. and too much influence. Um, personally, you know, I kind of can't see Amazon resorting to that. They won this battle in Bessemer pretty handily, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it could be enough to overturn the whole thing. Yeah, it is a fair vote. As you note, workers did not ultimately vote in support of forming a union. But does this create the real possibility that those results might get overturned? You know, a Amazon has yet to kind of make its case. It could it could easily come out and claim, you know, they had access to the mailbox because there was a sort of separate compartment for Amazon mail. Um, certainly, if the board finds Jackson's testimony credible, it could be reason enough to overturn the result. And Lily, I think I speak for all journalists who had to cover this thing in Bessemer. <laughs> you know, the idea of doing it all again is, uh, oh boy. Um, yeah. But, you know, as, as you note, I mean, Amazon employees did vote two to one against joining the union. It's It doesn't mean that this battle is over. You know, Amazon, and, and this is a thread that runs through my book, Amazon's anti-union. It's it's one of the most prominent companies in the world, and unions have really only just started to organize that workforce. Yeah, well, this is a story certainly worth keeping our eyes on. Let's talk about the book, Amazon Unbound. You're coming at this subject with quite a bit of authority, having already written a book about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. You just can't get enough, Brad. I don't know what's going on there, but um, <laughs> how is he different today from the person that you wrote about almost 10 years ago? Right. I, I'm a glutton for punishment for some reason. <laughs> um, my first book about Amazon was called The Everything Store, and it's about eight years old. And that company, you know, was the was the Kindle company, was the, you know, the, the bookseller. Uh, the first book was about the rise of the company in the 90s and the near death during the dot-com bust and then the, the, uh, the kind of uh, rise from the ashes. And, you know, over the years, I realized that it had just changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, the $100 billion market cap was a $1.6 trillion market cap. And this company pervaded almost every aspect of our lives. No kidding. Good and bad. No kidding. Eight years is an eternity in the lifetime of this company. Exactly. And, and you know, and things like Alexa and uh, the global globalization of the marketplace, the, the transportation division. I mean, here in the Bay Area, we see, I personally see, Amazon, you know, vans crawling my neighborhood and, and the and the highways and trucks on the interstate interstate up to Tahoe. And that that didn't that wasn't happening eight years ago. And talk about how much cooperation, if any, you got from Jeff Bezos and uh, and Amazon for the writing of this book, because you did get some for the everything store. How was this experience different? That's right. And folks might remember uh, that after the Everything Store came out, uh, Amazon didn't, or at least Jeff Bezos didn't love the book. And his <laughs> wife at the time, Mackenzie, gave me a one-star review. Ouch. Yeah, which, uh, you know, was a little bit of a badge of honor at the time <laughs> uh, and was probably good for sales. Uh, and so I thought, well, this is sunk and they'll never work with me again. But, you know, uh, five, six years passed and I brought them the idea for the sequel and they did cooperate. You know, I, I probably talked to nearly two dozen Amazon executives uh, for the book. It uh, it was very valuable. I, I do think um, right now they realize that it is better to, you know, have an input on on the big projects, uh, the books and the documentaries. Uh, they, they get a lot of attention. Um, and so uh, that cooperation was great. Uh, Bezos for this one would, would not talk to me. So maybe the wounds are still there. But the foundation of the book was really hundreds of interviews with former employees, current employees speaking uh, off the record, 
partners, competitors, you know, people who have witnessed the revolution and have stories to tell, mm -hmm. as I said, the good and the bad and the ugly. Uh, and of course, you know, not just Amazon, because this book is also about the Washington Post, where Bezos has had a tremendous impact since he bought the paper in 2013. And it's about Blue Origin, his space company, which is now sort of lagging badly and embarrassingly behind uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX and his very high-profile high uh, battle with the National Enquirer in 2019 over, over the details of his, uh, his high-profile affair. Uh, and so there, there's just you know, a lot there to cover, and it's the story of a big company that uh, got even bigger and a kind of empire of holdings that now seems to dominate our economic reality in our society. So, Brad, what would you have liked to ask Jeff Bezos if you'd had the chance? Oh, Lily, that's a really good question. I mean, he, you know, the, the, the challenge is always to get him off his game because when he does do when he does do interviews and make public appearances, he's so disciplined. He has these stories that he's kind of polished like little stones in a, ri in a river <laughs> that he trots out every single time. Um, he, the clip you, you played earlier in the show about, you know, driving the forklift and bringing the packages to the post office. You know, these are still the things he dines out on, at least in terms of his <laughs> interviews and public appearances. So the challenge would be to get him off his game and to ask him explicit questions about some of Amazon's high profile missteps, the, you know, the fraud and counterfeit that's allowed now on the marketplace or Amazon's conduct uh, with the HQ2 search, which I devote a chapter to in the book, you know, why after there were so many cynical interpretations of why Amazon was um, holding this bake off between cities, why they eventually picked, you know, two East Coast cities, you know, that weren't offering all, all of the, the best incentives or the lowest cost of building the things that they had stated they wanted at the beginning of that process. So, you know, those are the questions. That's probably why Bezos isn't doing those kinds of interviews anymore, because, you know, he, he, he I don't think he wants to answer the tough questions right now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so striking also since you wrote the Everything Store eight years ago is just how dramatically this company has has transformed for so many of us. I think we, we thought we knew what Amazon is as a company. Most of us consumers think of the retail side mostly. But what your book lays out in such detail is the dizzying array of things that they do. And I wonder, how do you explain the company's business model to people, given that wide array of things? Right. Well, you know, there there are elements of of the of the company that even I found difficult to write about for a general audience. Uh, Amazon Web Services is just a great example. This is the the cloud computing component of the company. You know, Bezos practically practically invented cloud computing, uh, at least in this incarnation in in two thousand three two thousand four. And you know, it's now the leader in this seismic shift in in how companies and governments and universities run their operations. And it has almost nothing to do with uh, storing and delivering packages that uh, of products people buy over the internet. So I guess the way to describe it is it's a set of interlocking businesses um, uh, with, with a kind of core operating philosophy, a set of very idiosyncratic customs and, and rituals that happen behind the scenes in Amazon's offices with a, a sort of focus on satisfying the customer above all else um, and getting a lot of leverage in the, in the business, um, you know, so growing sales at a, at a, at a higher 
higher pace than than they grow expenses. Uh, as I say it, Lily, I realize that's not altogether that uh, mellifluous or easily <laughs> understandable. But this is the power and the and how and how maybe frustrating this company can be, particularly to regulators and lawmakers. It mm-hmm. does defy easy understanding, and a lot of the pieces of the company are are not that consistent. Yeah, I mean, back when you were writing about it in 2013, um, Amazon, there's this cloud over the company in terms of the issue of profitability. uh, And that was something that really concerned investors at the time. But that just seems so far in the rear view at this point. And then you have the pandemic only solidifying its success. And of course, as we talked about the personal fortune of Jeff Bezos, talk us through how Amazon fared during the pandemic or has fared. Well, I mean, almost perversely, the company who that had all the advantages, um, you know, that was growing at an impressive clip, uh, whose stock price was already increasing, you know, hits the pandemic and all of these variables shift in its favor, right? And so a lot of its offline competition has to shut its doors. People feel fearful going going into physical stores. You know, parts of Amazon's business that were languishing, like grocery delivery, you know, suddenly get an injection of steroids. Um, people start to depend on Amazon and other online retailers as a kind of lifeline during the pandemic. Uh, Amazon TV shows and movies probably see a significant uptick in, in viewership because mm-hmm. people are are landlocked at home. And, um, and and the cloud services boom because people are sitting at home zooming zoom uses AWS and, right. and other services so so all around uh, quite quite a good year for Amazon absolutely we're talking with Brad Stone about his new book Amazon Unbound Jeff Bezos and the invention of a global empire we want to hear your questions about Amazon or Jeff Bezos give us a call now at 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch with us on Twitter Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. We're talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad, we started our conversation talking about Amazon now in hot water for potentially meddling in that union vote in Alabama. And you talk in your book about Amazon's attitude towards unions from very early in its history. I wonder from you, how did how do you think we got to this point where tech companies, it's not just Amazon, it's the companies right here in our own backyard in Silicon Valley as well. Um, so many of these companies are actively scuttling attempts to legislate worker protections. Right. Um, you know, I tell a story in the book of an Amazon executive named Dave Clark, who actually is now the CEO of the whole consumer business. And in one of his first jobs, he's at a warehouse in in the South. 
and he he packs up the back of a rider truck on the evening before Christmas and drives it to a UPS facility uh, to make that last shipment. And the, the Teamsters don't let him in um, because he's he's not a unionized worker. And I think there was a feeling among Amazon executives early on that unionization was going to limit their flexibility, um, was going to uh, prevent workers from taking night shifts and working weekends. And they looked around, and, and I think Jeff Bezos did this, and I have I report this in the book. He he looked around at at companies like the U.S. automakers and thought that a, an organized, entrenched workforce limited their fl- flexibility and their ability to innovate. Mm. And and rightly or not, that became a kind of kryptonite. And we have seen ever since the company, uh, Amazon, and its tech brethren in in the Bay Area fight all attempts at unionization. And and part of it is that feeling like um, they can't chase the next thing or, or be flexible or innovative. And part of it is not, you know, wanting to go through the rituals of collective bargaining and mm. negotiation. Um, they want to keep a, a contract workforce at arm's length, even as they control them. Um, you know, they, they want to be able to bring in tons of people and then push them out if they're not performing. And obviously, a union would go and, and prevent a lot of those things from happening. And Brad, what has struck you about how Amazon in particular among these companies has responded to these recent reports about poor working conditions? I mean, they're sort of in a singular category in some ways. There are these allegations about workers having to urinate in bottles. And, you know, the company's initial response also caught a lot of people off guard. They were pretty snarky about it, right, on social media. Did that surprise you, given that you have watched how carefully they have crafted and curated their public image for so long? It surprised me how tone deaf it was. And in part, they're reaping what they sow, because in the transportation network, um, they don't employ those drivers. They have made a very uh, deliberate decision to go and work with middlemen and, and third-party operators um, you know, to go and deliver those packages. Um, those drivers are wearing Amazon uniforms, and they're driving trucks that say Amazon, but they are not Amazon employees. They're, they're running Amazon software, and increasingly there are video cameras and, and algorithms and software running in those vehicles that monitor their performance. But they're not employees, and and Amazon has followed companies like FedEx and created this kind, of, creating this kind of fissured relationship, um, you know, to to get out of some of the legal liability, uh, to be able to pay a lower wage and, uh, you know, evade a more significant commitment of benefits like healthcare, and so as a result, you know, they they probably don't exactly know what's happening down down on on the mm-hmm. roads, and so it was a very ham-fisted response. You know, the, the public posture of Amazon has always been sort of to lead with its chin. And so they reversed course. Jeff Bezos wrote in his investor letter last month that he's going to start personally working on improving working conditions. Uh, but they've got a long way to go. And the reason that we're hearing a lot of these stories um, among drivers and among workers is because Bezos himself has created a little bit of a, a mean culture. Um, another thing I report in the book is that he he personally uh instituted a rule where workers can't get raises after three years. And it goes back to what I was saying about unions. Um, he, he, he doesn't want an entrenched workforce. He wants workers to come in, give it their all, and then if they don't get promoted, to move on. And, and there's a lot of ways in which the Amazon culture is so performance-driven that it has become kind of informally cruel. And, mm. uh, and so it's just not a surprise that the anecdotes we hear reflect that. 
We're talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. And we want to hear your questions. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. And we do have a caller on the line, Camille. Go ahead. Hi, I was wondering if either Jeff Bezos or Amazon as a company, any of their um, companies are involved in any meaningful philanthropic activity and is no, what can consumers do to put pressure on them to engage in this? Thank you. Thank you, Camille. That's such a great question. And and you do touch on this uh, in your book, Brad, about how in their hometown of Seattle, um, Jeff Bezos is not exactly a, a, you know, a figure that people see on a regular basis. He sort of keeps to himself. And philanthropy was absolutely an af- afterthought. I think it's a, a great point from Camille. Um, this company and, and Bezos himself were so so focused on you know building their empire, on satisfying the customer, on expanding in the new product categories and parts of the world. You know, giving back to the community really wasn't high on the list. And there were a couple of executives on the real estate team that pioneered some stuff um, in terms of like a homeless shelter, Mary's Place in Seattle. And you've seen the company kind of lean into that a lot, using mm-hmm. it a lot in their in their public relations. And I think it, it has gotten better, but that's all very recent. And it's because, as Camille says, the demand from, well, the demand internally from employees to do more and, and hopefully the demand from customers, right? We want the big companies in our midst to be kind of better public citizens. We see that in the, in the Bay Area. Amazon was just sort of uniquely reclusive, uh, but it can certainly no longer get away with that. And it was one of the reasons why they got clobbered in Long Island City in Queens, because, you know, the the commitments they were making to the community uh, just seemed far outweighed by the tax breaks that they were getting. Annie writes a question to us. She asks, how is the Washington Post changing under Bezos? Of the many things that this company does and that Jeff Bezos now oversees, of course, he also runs that newspaper. And it's easy to forget at times that he is now a media baron. Right. And Lily, in the in the book, I have a whole chapter on the Washington Post. Its revival under Bezos's ownership has been remarkable, mm. and it wasn't just because he he brought a, an open checkbook to them. He actually turned down a couple of the money losing budgets that they proposed to him, but he did it the right way. Um, he he asked them to bring him new product ideas. He prioritized the digital efforts uh, over the analog sales efforts. He allowed them to hire tactically uh, on the national desk and internationally, and deprioritize some local stuff. And he got fortunate, frankly, with the Trump administration and the mm. explosion and in interest in news. But he, Bezos has been good for the Post. He has somewhat cynically, I think, wrapped himself up in the Post when things get tough, like, for example, with the National Enquirer saga, which really had nothing to do with his ownership of the paper, or at least very little to do with it. Um, but, um, you know, you look at the Post now, 3 million digital subscribers, sales growth uh, through the roof, and you have to admire him for what he's done there. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I want to return to this issue of worker protections and sort of the way the company is viewed as a corporate citizen. Feel free to push back on me here, Brad, but Amazon isn't just a monopoly. I mean, it's a it's a multi-headed <laughs> monopoly or duopoly in so many different spaces, whether it's in e-commerce or the cloud or incre- increasingly we're seeing that in streaming as well. And then we hear from people like Senator Elizabeth Warren calling them out. And yet, 
from what I, you know, from what I can tell, I'm not seeing a lot of meaningful change happening on that front. Where do you see things headed on the antitrust crackdown? Right. Well, I, I thought you were going uh, just on on Amazon as an employer, and I have to say it, it is complicated because you know Amazon tends to float up to the top of the a list for companies like LinkedIn, top companies to work for, and as we mentioned, it wins the vote in Bessemer. You know, uh, tinkering with the the postal box aside, mm. um, it does seem to be a coveted employer. Maybe that says more about our kind of employment landscape right now, and Amazon is one of the biggest options. But when it comes to antitrust, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to be tough because this company is complicated to understand and it operates in vast markets like retail and cloud computing with, with big established competitors like Walmart and retail and Google and Microsoft in, in, in enterprise software. Um, you know, we saw Microsoft in the 1990s, you know, have a hammer lock on the operating systems uh, market and behave really explicitly in anti-competitive ways. And, you know, Microsoft was slowed down, but it wasn't broken up. And today it's larger than Amazon. And so I look ahead and, and there are, you know, very charismatic critics like Senator Warren and Klobuchar and and some some folks that the Biden administration is bringing in, like like uh, Lena Khan, a Columbia Law School professor, who wrote a famous story, a famous uh, Yale Law Review article about reevaluating antitrust law, mm-hmm. and the firepower and the will is there, but when you talk about this legal proceeding that's going to have to go on for years and the complexity of the issues. Uh, and how crowded the battlefield right now is in terms of the big tech companies that have to be evaluated by antitrust authorities. I just don't see anything happening anytime soon to hmm. slow down Amazon's rise. And Lena Khan, who you mentioned, of course, was nominated by President Biden to the Federal Trade Commission. Interesting pick because she is a longtime critic of Amazon and uh, and of big tech more generally. Um, we have a caller named Carol on the line. Go ahead, Carol. Hi. Hi. Well, I'm just surprised that that Amazon is uh, so anti-union and, you know, contracts all the drivers even wear their uniform. It's just disappointing. I mean, I'm a longtime Amazon purchaser, right? And now I'm thinking I should maybe not be buying from them. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a issue that so many customers are now grappling with as more of these stories make their way into the mainstream press. Brad, um, I know you're you're an Amazon customer yourself. That's right. Yeah, no, and I'm I uh, try to be explicit about that. I'm always wary of of feeling or being hypocritical on it. I'm a, I'm a Prime member. I'm a uh, I'm an Alexa owner. I had to mute my Alexa. I'm looking at it now, so it wouldn't. Uh, perk up as we were talking. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, this is why I wrote the book. I mean, I think we need to understand uh, the compromises we make every time we click on the buy now button. And, you know, I, I really um, consciously started this book tour with an event at, at Book Passage in Marin, because I feel like when we make these buying decisions, we really need to think about, you know, the local businesses that we're supporting, that we want to be part of our communities. And the, you know, and the toll that Amazon's kind of work style is having on on blue collar labor in in lots of parts of this country. Now, as I said, right, Amazon is sometimes the only game in town and it is adding employees at a time when, you know, labor growth hasn't been spectacular. So it's a trade off. And I just think we need to better understand those trade offs. 
We're talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. And we want to hear your questions. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Brad, we have a question from Arthur who writes, what is the potential for organizing Amazon workers into a union after Alabama? Would the PRO Act, a new labor organizing law in Congress, help? Right. Well, I, I think it helps, um, but we, we I think we need to be clear about the reality, which is an organized labor movement in you know long term decline over over many decades. You know, a playing field that is tilted not just towards Amazon, but to all big companies in terms of you know the relationship, um, the evangelizing they can do with their employees in the facilities that unions can't do. And probably, like, we need to be clear-eyed about the belief among a lot of workers in Alabama and elsewhere that, you know, that unions haven't done much for them historically or offered much for them. Um, you know, Alabama, well, I think one of the things that the union had going against it was, a you know, a sort of institutional memory among workers that, you know, the, the steel jobs that had once been there hadn't been very well protected, had migrated first to the north and then probably overseas. And, um, you know, so the, the, I think the, the disadvantages that the union has vis-a-vis Amazon really aren't unique to this company. We've been seeing it kind of across all of, of American business uh, for, for many, many years. And yeah, a pro-union Biden administration and, and some of these proposed new laws can help. But the unions also have to think, I think, very strategically about what they're offering, you know, at a, at a time when a company like Amazon can come in with a $15 an hour or a $17 an hour wage and healthcare benefits and tuition reimbursement, you know, a package of compensation that looks far better than what they might get elsewhere. And so in that respect, the union is always going to face, I think, a little bit of an uphill battle. Mm. Do you see antitrust moves having a better shot, Brad, in other countries? I mean, the EU certainly does seem a little bit farther ahead in thinking about some of these issues. And I and sure, Amazon's wings might get clipped in terms of some of the things it does with its third-party marketplace or its private label products. But Amazon is a boulder running downhill. And what we're mm-hmm. talking about right now are little kind of potholes on the on the downward slope. It might slow down the company. They might, you know, have to change their behavior in terms of uh, you know, private label products or whatnot, but that's not; those are not existential threats to the company. So, yes, maybe more success, but nothing in terms of a, a company stopping or even company changing moment. Steve writes: You suggested that the company is quote cruel because it's not employee friendly. You're right that it is very performance driven, but why is that a problem? No one is forced to stay, and there is a market for labor, and people can choose to work for more quote cuddly places if they wish. So, what's the problem you seem to be pointing at? Well, I mean, I, I actually think it is a problem because um, you know Amazon creates, you know Amazon you know, is op- operates in, in competitive markets, not just consumer markets, but labor markets and, and other companies have to match its performance. And so, you know, the, the pace of its growth or the tenor it sets with employees, um, the productivity it gets out of its workforce through some of these kind of cultural realities of the company, other companies view Amazon as a model, right? And seek to copy it. So, you know, th- this kind of meanness as I'm talking about, and let's maybe put it in, in quotes, um, 
is, um, you know, is something that is sort of lauded and admired elsewhere in corporate America. And to the extent that it, it passes from one company to another and becomes a kind of labor norm, yeah, I, I think that can be a problem. And you paint the portrait of a number of employees, past and present, in the book. One that comes to mind is Megan Wolf, who helped organize the first Prime Day. She is kind of a picture of a disillusioned former employee. But, you know, this is somebody who actually excelled at Amazon and yet ends up leaving. Not only that, she ends up canceling her Prime account and deactivating her, you know, her whole, you know, basically all of her links to Amazon. How crowded is that club of these sort of disillusioned former workers there? You know, I, let's not overstate it, right? Amazon employs over a million people. It has probably formerly employed, you know, just just as many. And you get a wide variety of reactions and feelings. There are many employees and executives who view their time at Amazon proudly. And I think actually Megan Wolf, who was the, the product manager on the first Prime Day, was proud of some of her accomplishments. Uh, and then ultimately, she kind of looked back at her tenure and thought that she had given to the company more than she had gotten mm. and that she didn't necessarily admire Bezos in the end or his his kind of philanthropic commitments. And, you know, she left the company and went somewhere else. So um, there there are plenty of, of folks who, you know, look at that leadership team and feel like it's not diverse enough, um, you know, who want the company to be more socially conscious, who really recoiled when Amazon fired some of the vocal, you know, members of its of its uh, of, uh, vocal employees who are agitating for more progress on climate protection and on, on safety in the fulfillment centers. Um, but, you know, again, it's a, it's a company of a million people. You get a lot of opinions. We are talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. We're going to be taking more of your calls and questions right after this break. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Lily Jamali. We're talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. And caller JT is on the line with a question about the future of robotic delivery. Go ahead, JT. Hi, good morning, Brad. Um, I have a question really about what's going to happen in a couple of years. The FAA has started to certify Part 135 drone delivery. They're testing in Florida, North Carolina, Maine, you know, the Dakotas. It's coming. You've got Neuro here in the Bay Area on the ground delivering, and then you've got automatic robotic pickers. So in a couple of years, do all these Amazon employees go away anyway? I mean, what's what's going to happen? Yeah, JT, it's a great question. Um, I I will I will 
sound skeptical about this, uh, and and maybe unreasonably so. Um, I feel like last mile delivery in particular is is going to be really difficult to uh, to automate. Um, you know, one, there's the challenge of just getting a package from the, the street to our porch. You know, hard, hard to imagine a, the Terminator-like robot that will emerge to do that eventually. You know, drone delivery was a, an idea that Bezos pitched very prematurely back in 2013 to kind of, you know, get out in front of what he thought was going to be an industry trend. And now it's eight years later. It, it hasn't really happened but what has happened is Amazon's, you know, bringing vans into our communities, and those vans are packed with uh, with packages. And I think the the unit economics are far better to do that than to send, you know, a drone out at least in major cities with one package apiece. Now, maybe in rural areas that that makes sense, but I don't see uh, Amazon drones clouding our skies here in the Bay Area. And then in the fulfillment centers, obviously Kiva Kiva robots, um, these sort of uh, Roomba-like robots that move pallets of, pack, of of products around have made a big impact. But the next step would be robots that can kind of pick packages off a shelf or put them in boxes and wrap them up. And that seems somewhat far off. So I do think the automation has will have a slow kind of impact. Um, uh, but in terms of like replacing labor, I mean, the, the labor needs of Amazon, if anything, are growing. They just said they were going to hire, I think, another 50,000 employees. So I don't, I don't see it eclipsing or even slowing down Amazon's labor growth. I haven't heard a whole lot about drone delivery in a couple of years, but I will say as a former tech reporter, I filed my fair share of stories on it, guilty as charged. <laughs> um, Susan has a question. Uh, she's on the line. Go ahead, Susan. Welcome to Forum. to educate us and expose us around the things going on with these huge mega corporations. But your statements about unions just seem so off the mark. Um, unions are working, workers standing together to have some power to make changes. And that's why Amazon has contracted out all these workers so that no one will have the ability to really join together. They were threatened with firing, the plant moving, all kinds of things that in this world, as we talk about the right to vote fairly and freely publicly in our elections, the same thing should apply at work. And that's what the attempt of the PRO Act is to do, to right many wrongs. So I would just appreciate, you know, a balanced view that we have work standards today. Amazon is paying $15 an hour because of the service employees unions fight for 15. They're not doing anything that they're doing out of goodness, but because unions are fighting every day to try and up the standards. And that's clearly we have a long way to go and need to do it better. But I just wanted to make that comment and appreciate that folks will, you know, look at this in a different way. Thank you so much for your call, Susan. And Brad, I mean, I think her comment really speaks to how polarizing this company is and, and has been for a long time. I'm looking at another con- comment from someone named Chris who writes, I'm so tired of the villainization of Amazon. So it's just the, the, the spectrum of opinions on this company is so broad. Yeah, and I want to say that I actually agree with Susan. I mean, Amazon did not voluntarily go to $15 an hour a couple of years ago. They did it because of public pressure from Senator Bernie Sanders and and others on the on on the left and and certainly unions who who for years had been agitating for a $15 an hour wage. And Amazon saw, you know, not not just um, a sort of, you know, reason to mollify its workforce, but a public benefit to be able to go and pay that wage and use it as a competitive cudgel to go and 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 you know hammer over the head uh rivals like walmart uh who aren't there yet um and so right none of this happens in a vacuum but and but i do agree that amazon's employee relationships like the contract 
the contractors in its uh, in its transportation division. You know, all of that is is really you know strategic, and Amazon does it because it's resisting unionization because they see that as a kind of poison uh, to to their model. But you know to 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 the other um, to the other listeners' point, like we we are hitting a little bit of the negative. And in this book, you know, I write a lot about the innovation side of Amazon, and there's a lot to be admired in in the way that they kind of created Alexa and brought that to to the market. The things they're doing with gross, grocery stores to try to use technology to like reduce the wait times in the cashier line. Um, you know, Am- Amazon is a sort of uniquely American company. And while, you know, I think there are a lot of things that we need to understand better and be wary of, um, you know, we're uh, the, the tech companies, I think, in, in the U.S. are like a great sign of American America's competitiveness and innovative spirit. And so mm-hmm. I by no means view, you know, view this book or myself as an Amazon critic, nor do I see myself or this book as a, a, a hagiography of the company. It's simply an account of how, how this company became so big and now reaches into so many corners of our lives. Well, Brad, let's see how many stars you get from Mackenzie Bezos uh, this next time. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully more than one. We are talking with Brad Stone of Bloomberg News about his new book, Amazon Unbound. Got another great question from Jennifer, who writes, what is Amazon doing, if anything, to combat climate change within their company? They still ship with an overabundance of plastic and bubble wrap. Um, I have to agree with that. It, it is sometimes totally. stunning the amount of packaging that comes with some of these products that when they when they you know land on your doorstep. Yeah, and there's a lot of space between their their public pronouncements and the right the reality that is showing up on our doorstep, and and not just the packaging, but sometimes like different products that you order at the same time that show up separately. It feels like there's a lot that they could do, but in 2019, their employees started to clamor uh, for 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 them to do more and and uh, climate activists started to try to get Amazon and Bezos to release the, the carbon impact report. And then in a very Bezos-like way, he, de- he declined to do just that. He wanted to be perceived as a leader. So they introduced this thing called the Climate Pledge, which is basically uh, getting to carbon neutral and meeting the, the, the Paris Climate Accord standards by uh, 2040, I believe. And now they've invited other companies to sign it, and some have, and they've renamed the the uh, basketball arena in Seattle, the Climate Pledge Arena. So I, I think the long-term goals are, are laudable, and the company has uh, kind of woken up, I think, to the challenge and to their carbon impact, which is, is more significant than most tech companies because they do operate the trucks and the airplanes and the fulfillment centers and the, and the data centers. And yet you, you also want to see kind of more day-to-day progress in the, in, the, in the packages. Brad, I'm curious from you why you think Jeff Bezos is stepping down as CEO of Amazon later this year. And, you know, I have to think back to just the last two to three years, you know, how dramatically his public image has changed. Um, I'm thinking of the scandal with his um, his new fling. I don't know if it's a fling. It's more of a relationship, it looks like, with Lauren Sanchez and right. that whole scandal with the Saudis. Um, you know, is he just ready to kind of, um, you know, to move on? Do you think he'll be involved in the day to day even as he ostensibly steps down? Yeah, I, I think he will be involved in in the day-to-day. I don't think he's really leaving Amazon. He says he's going to continue to work on new projects, which is really what he's been doing for the past few years. And I think he'll still be the, the loudest voice in the conference room. But I'll just say two additional things. You know, one is his world has gotten a lot bigger. 
Um, he's got the post and Blue Origin, a space company, and um, his 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 personal philanthropy, the Bezos Earth Fund. I report in the book that he's building a, a super yacht uh, with it, its own support yacht for helipads. So you know maybe he'll spend some more time on the high seas. Um, and and then the second point is I go back to the House Antitrust Subcommittee hearing last year where he had to appear virtually alongside Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg. And I just don't think he wants to be the public face of the company in that way. Um, mm. You know, Andy Andy Jassy, his deputy, is, um, you know, presents a little bit of a humbler target. Um, you know, he he sees, Bezos sees his time as maybe more more valuable than that. And so he's happy for his, uh, his longtime deputy to take the slings and arrows as he goes and, you know, applies himself as, you know, he considers himself to be an inventor. He, he's now saying that increasingly frequently. So I think he wants to spend his time coming up with new things. Yeah. And you hint in the book that it, it sounds like some employees of the company are kind of breathing a sigh of relief with the promise of his departure. We have another uh, caller. Brad is on the line. Go ahead and welcome to Forum, Brad. Hi, you guys. Thank you for uh, taking my call and thank you for this topic. I read Andrew Yang's book, and it seems like, and I agree with Brad, what you just said, not vilifying Amazon itself, but really it's a, I want to see what you think of this as more, I see this more as a systemic problem, because in capitalism itself, the very goal of it is to eliminate the need for human labor and increase productivity and and all the savings basically are funneled to the people at the top who, you know, and basically they buy assets, uh, ownership of land and stocks, anybody who owns those things don't have to do the traditional form of labor while those things go up in value. And I just think like a lot of times what I hear is people conflating technology with the benefits technology has brought us, such as what JPL is doing with the Mars rover with Ingenuity flying alone. We have amazing technology, yet this system allows the benefits and cost savings of that technology, which is owned by the species, to be funneled to people own. And meanwhile, most of that savings are eliminating the need for human labor. I just see this as not sustainable. Um, finally, just real quick, if I could just state, <clears throat> I think a lot of times I point out that capitalism was great for three to four decades after World War II. You know, when but we hit three billion in population in 1960, and, and likewise, it's a time to evolve. I think because uh, just even like uh, if you look back, feudalism was appropriate in 1280. I mean. 400 years before the Gutenberg press when there was 350 million people on the planet. So it was appropriate that population level and that technology level. But, uh, and like I said, I think capitalism has seen its zenith and I think it's really time to evolve. And I think, uh, again, not pecking on Amazon, Amazon's just using great technology, but I would like to see on a more systemic level, what you think. Uh, and especially again, I think Andrew Yang's book is great. I will also plug, Thomas Piketty's film, Capital in the 21st Century, that also makes amazing points. And there's another film called uh, Moving Forward that uh, really is a solid critique of the, the capital system and monetary, monetary system. Because um, anyway, mm. if they're outdated, I think it's time well, to evolve. I think, Brad, thank yeah. you for that really interesting call. And, and your point is well taken. I, I mean, I think a lot about this, Brad. You know, we're as tech reporters or business reporters, I think there's a spotlight on us now for having dropped the ball somewhat in the way we cover these companies, um, that we're not focusing enough on these systemic issues on on labor. We're focused on the shiny object, which is the guy at the top. Um, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts there? 
Well, I mean, and and not just labor, but like, let's put it in a broader category of unintended consequences. And I go back to um, the 2016 election as this great, I feel like, enlightening moment where, you know, the 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 election swung to Donald Trump and we had to sort of reevaluate with clear eyes, you know, the impact of social networks like uh, like Facebook and, and YouTube and and Google's impact and what it had done to pervert our democracy. And it was like a set of blinders had fallen off uh, our collective eyes in the tech press. And that's, that's not to say we were totally hagiographic hey, beforehand, but well, I think what had happened was, um, you know, these companies had been built up and globalized with enormous speed and the the you know the repercussions hadn't been carefully considered and and that's a a theme that runs throughout Amazon Unbound the impact of a global marketplace and this these transportation networks and it has had a deleterious impact on on labor and on our economy This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED go to kqed.org. I'm Lily Jamali. And we are talking with Brad Stone about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad, what does the future of Amazon look like to you? I mean, every empire eventually falls. Are you seeing any signs of decline? It's hard to imagine, given its recent trajectory. Not yet. The future of Amazon is more Amazon, Uh, more (laughs) fulfillment centers, closer to our homes, more vans and trucks. Uh, more TV shows and movies on Prime Video, um, probably more Amazon stores, physical stores mm. in our communities. Which is one of the uh, funniest parts of this whole thing. I mean, if there is a funny thing here, <laughs> this movement to brick and mortar is 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 an interesting right. development, right? Well, it's 90% of retail is still in, in physical places. And so they've wow. decided they need to be there and they're doing it with really inventive technology solutions like, like the ghost store or the dash cart where you put products in and it automatically tallies them up. So yeah, I see no slowing down of the Amazon juggernaut or or the Amazon empire. I got to ask you about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Um, (laughs) We haven't talked a whole lot about Blue Origin, which is uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, space company. But I wonder how you compare the two people who Obviously, they they both have very large egos. I think we can get that out there. <laughs> Just put that mm. on the table. And they are both competing in that space. I didn't realize this until I read your book, but Musk and Bezos actually sat down when uh, when Elon Musk was thinking about getting into the business. Right. And, and they had you know very similar ambitions, um, kind of a little bit of a different end goal. Elon wants to go to Mars. Jeff wants to put orbiting space stations in in space and harvest the unlimited energy of the sun and get some heavy manufacturing off of Earth. That's a sort of multi-century goal. Um, But Jeff made some sort of bad decisions, I feel like, early on. He decided Blue Origin was going to move really slowly. He wanted to constrain the headcount and limit his investment. And Elon came around and grew very quickly and took government contracts and just scaled much quicker. And then Bezos, a couple of years ago, I think, saw that and sort of changed approaches. And the result at Blue Origin, at least so far, has been a little bit of corporate dysfunction. So it is the one uh, kind of jewel in the crown of Bezos's accomplishment that, you know, doesn't look so great right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see as he retires as CEO of Amazon if he plans to spend more time at Blue Origin. 
Kristen writes, Jeff Bezos is to me the epitome of what is wrong with America. The greed he shows from your example of not hiring folks as employees to his low wages and fighting unions. This is the new jungle, as Upton Sinclair wrote about years ago. We should be pushing for the government to break up Amazon for unions within this company and for this man to pay more taxes. Joel writes, come on, haven't we been here before? At first, it was the big box stores. Go back further. It was Walmart. Isn't this the evolution of corporate America? Thoughts, Brad? Well, you know, again, it, the the uh, the polarization that this company seems to usher in. Um, but I will say that I do, I do hear some Amazon critics, and I feel like they don't well, there there are many Amazon critics that talked about Walmart for a good decade, and now mm. Walmart doesn't even seem to be in their vocabulary. <laughs> and, and that is interesting. I, I do think there is credence to this idea that Amazon has uniquely uh, come to occupy a sort of boogeyman role mm. uh, in our society. And we attribute it, you know, to go back to the, a previous caller, I think it was Brad, um, you know, you know, responsible for a lot of the ills, not just of capitalism, but of the accelerating impact that the internet has had on it, where, you know, there are these network effects where kind of, you know, momentum and wealth is accruing to the very few. And that's really not an Amazon problem. That's a structure of, of the internet and our competitive markets right now, our capital markets, and our the unwillingness of, I think, regulators and lawmakers to keep pace with it. Michael writes, I quit going to Whole Foods when the world's richest man decided that part-time workers' health care should be taken away. One more comment of that ilk. Real quickly, I have 30 seconds with you, Brad. Uh, who is Andy Jassy, the guy who's taking over? Right, Lily. He is a longtime Bezos deputy. He was the chief of staff or shadow in the early years. Um, Harvard Business School grad, um, Giants fan. Um, he, he built a 50 50- billion dollar a year business in the cloud computing arena and and he is the future of amazon all right well thank you brad stone senior executive editor at bloomberg he has a new book out called amazon unbound jeff bezos and the invention of a global empire brad thank you so much for joining us today thank you lily you've been listening to forum i'm lily jamali stay tuned for another hour of forum ahead with mina kim Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.